it's time for the Everyman, where real man talk. Let's go. Time to grind, get inside your mind. Yeah, we working overtime. That's the only way to climb. We gon' make it in our prime. Signing on the dotted line, cashing checks left and right. That's the way I'm living life. Hello, good evening, and welcome to the Everyman Podcast. Tonight we have a very special guest. We have Eddie Cobb, the founder and the CEO of Adapt. How are you doing tonight, Eddie? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, not bad. Quite tired, but good. Looking forward to this. Yeah, it it has definitely been a long day for us all. And this is slightly later than usual. So to all listeners, um, I'm sure people will hop on as it goes. Um, apologies for the slight uh, later start than usual. But we have a really, really exciting episode to get into. And one that's probably more emotional than maybe some of our stories get to. So Eddie, we're super keen to understand who you are, what your story is, what your background is, and why you do the incredible work that you do. Um, not just in your obviously your personal life, but also in work as well. Um, before we get started, we do have a segment every single week uh, at the start of every episode where essentially we, as the everyman, we go around to each other. This is our chance every week to just have a little bit of a catch up with each other, just see how everyone's week's been, how everyone's feeling. Um, be really honest about that as well. I think that's super important that we use this time to to talk about how our weeks have been, what if anything's stressing us out. Um, just to get that time in with each other. So, Reese, I'm going to start with you, mate, because um, I usually go with Ethan, and Ethan isn't on the podcast. So, you're the first person on my screen that I can see. How's your week been? Mate? Yeah, um, it's it, up and down. I was ill most of last week. I was off work on the Monday, and then I worked from home the rest of the week. But so you know, I um, haven't done any run really. I've done a 5k on Saturday morning. And it completely wiped us out for the whole weekend. So I missed my run yesterday and swim with the kids on Saturday. Um, but yeah, no, it's been pretty boring. Um, work, not a lot really, but yeah, it's been all right, I guess. Um, how about you, James? So, so yeah, no, no. So when when I ask that, right, two seconds, guys. When I ask that, it's not necessarily just how your week's been. Like, how's your how's your mental health been? How, how have you been feeling this week? Yeah. Um. I guess not not the best because I haven't been running. Um, when I don't run, mm-hmm. it has a big big impact, really. Um, yeah, like I always I always feel when the running stops, I'm sort of my head goes along with it. Um, I let I let things just take over, really. I kind of I, I lose a bit of. I don't know how to put it really. It's just, it's weird what running does for me. It completely clears my head, and without it, I, it starts to get cloudy, and I lose that 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 ability to have things like a lot more clear. Um, as you guys seen today, um, in the, in the chat, but no, I, I, I am doing okay. I am having this. Yeah, it's it's great for us. It really is. It keeps when I when I don't have. I think if I didn't have this, then running like I would have felt a lot cloudier than what I did. But no, it's, it it is still good. I am still good. I'm a lot better than where I was eight months ago. So I'm happy. No, that is oh, great oh. to hear, mate. And yes, we definitely seen a little bit of a Reese wobble today. <laughs> not in a not in a actual serious way. In a God, I'm getting a little bit frustrated. Um, 
yeah, I need I need a release of some sort. So I think the podcast has probably come at the best time. James, how are you feeling? And apologies, I think there's a slight delay on me. So sorry about that. Oh, it's all right. Yeah, uh, I'm not too bad. Last week and a half has been a bit hectic because uh, I'm living at the top of Scotland, over 300 miles away from home. So uh, last weekend we went home. Uh, we did the live podcast with the boys. So uh, we had a wedding to go to and we're in the process of buying a house. So we were doing a lot of viewings and stuff. So it was like absolutely hectic. We were knackered. And then we had to drive the 300 miles uh, back up. So this weekend we've done absolutely fuck all. Just chilled out and just had a had a good time. To be fair, we needed it. Like it, it was absolutely knackered. Um, but all in all, yeah, feeling good. Um, full of energy after that weekend. Like definitely built it back up and well rested. So yeah, how are you, Eddie? That's great news. Um, yeah, I'm okay. I'm I'm suffering with the insomnia at the moment, so I've was up at two in the morning until five and then the kids woke me up at six and then I came into work and that was quite stressful today at work um and then I had some stuff going on with my son which I can talk about uh when we get into it but yeah it's a uh, single parenting is a bit of a challenge and I'm quite exhausted <laughs> um but I feel good feeling grateful today so yeah good how are you, Lewis? No, that is great to hear. Yeah, do you know what? Um, I am shattered, like really, really, really tired. We talked about this before the pod that um, like my work is about to hit the busiest period of time that it's ever had. As a business, we are going through a really big launch of lots of things. Um, and with that, there's so much change and there's longer hours. I was in London for three days last week. And whilst there was some really good, fun social time, that also pays its price on you later on. Like, I, f- I feel like I've just been playing catch up all weekend. Haven't really, like you, Reese, um, I was running nearly every day and I haven't ran since Wednesday and it's now Monday. I played football on the weekend, but I haven't gone out there and actually done the things that were making me feel like maybe in control so you described it that it's like a release and it helps remove some of maybe some of the cloudy thoughts um i haven't had that ability to just go out clear my head so depending on what time we get done tonight i might even just go and bang out a 5k just to get something done and, and get back out again in the morning but um i'm not holding my breath because this is one where we have loads of questions and yeah i think eddie's story is something that all our guests, all our all our sort of audience, really need to hear because it's it's one that definitely resonated with with us as a podcast. So that's probably a great segue into Eddie. Do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and um, the types of things that we might be discussing tonight, and and we can sort of go from there into some questions and things. Yeah, sure. So I'm 32, born in West Berkshire. Uh, and I've got two siblings. Uh, they're a lot older than me. Um, and I now live in Oxford and I'm in recovery from addiction. I've experienced quite a few relapses, the, the last one being quite horrendous. Um, and I've just recently celebrated a year clean. Um, 
and I'm glad to be back. I think whenever I celebrate, you know, clean time birthdays and when I have in the past, it's always a time for me to reflect, you know, where I was and where I am. And I'm very connected to my last relapse. And I think that's really important. And I don't sit in it, but it's just important for me to remember what it was like for me. Um, and tonight, you know, I can talk about my own addiction, my experiences growing up. I come from quite an affluent family. Um, and I've also experienced living with an addict, um, which is quite, um, that's a bit of a story. <laughs> um, and also talk about a charity that I founded uh, in 2019 and kind of the journey of ADAPT um why I set it up and where it is now and my vision for the charity yeah that all sounds like each thing probably in itself is probably a full story again within itself so yeah super interesting to almost unpick really non-offensive way and, and understand all about who you are and and sort of where you're at um you you touched upon in sort of the early part of what you what you discussed there yes mate you're on quite a delay and you're kind of timing out a little bit of times there okay reese you go drop i'll come back okay yeah um yeah no i think like lewis just said there that each little segment of your story could be a full podcast in its own so I guess really got to start at the beginning, don't we? Um, and have a have a listen to where your childhood was. And yeah, if you don't mind telling us a bit about that. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so born in 91 uh, in London, um, as I said, into an affluent family. My mother's never worked. Um, and my father recently actually, well, last night announced his retirement after 53 years of working in the city. Uh, in finance, never had a day off in his life. Um, so I aspire to be like my father, he's an incredible man, worked very hard. And, you know, he worked really hard to give us the best education, what he thought was the best education and, and the best kind of life for us all. And as a child, I think I, I really struggled with uh, my weight as a child. Um, and quite often at work, we talk about generational trauma um, and how it kind of passes down, you know, through to our children. And my grandmother was a very stern woman. I didn't know any of my grandparents, but my grandmother, you know, she she was an interesting woman, very outspoken. Uh, she was quite high up in the NSPCC. So she was chairman of the NSPCC uh, committee in London. Um, and she was a very opinionated and very judgmental woman. And she had high expectations of my mother. Um, and my when my mother had children, she put on weight. Um, and my grandmother wasn't particularly kind to her and favoritized my uncle. And my mother had so much kind of undealt with trauma that she passed it on to me and my siblings. Um, and I was a very anxious child. 
Um, I started, so my, my primary, I would say, is food. Um, and from the age of five, I used to overeat. And with the kind of eating, my eating habits were very secretive. And I think back in the day, like now we have, there's so much more awareness around the dangers of sugars and hidden sugars. Like as a kid, I remember, you know, eating cereal and being able to kind of read that there was always a toy. Do you remember there used to be toys in, in cereal boxes? Yeah, and yeah. we'd sit at the table and read the cereal boxes. And now it's just like everyone's on their phones. Yeah. Um, yeah. But no one knew kind of at home we had there was loads of junk um and I guess as a, a coping tool for whatever was going on for me at the time I think I felt quite unsafe as a child my mother was quite angry there was a lot of anger in the house um quite volatile felt quite volatile and um and food kind of became my escapism um and after um, a recent podcast I did, I was, I was talking to my brother and sister actually about, you know, our childhood and my brother and sister tried to do as much as they could around me and, you know, my food struggles. Um, and I, because of the impact my grandma had on my mother, she didn't want to transfer that onto me. So she avoided it. Whereas actually maybe it's really tough as a parent, isn't it? There's no, there's no manual. It's not like, this is how it is. You don't know how it's going to be until you have children. And I don't blame my parents in any way. You know, they did the best that they could. Um, and I've got some really fond memories of my childhood. A lot of it I can't remember. And I think that's, that's a trauma response. Um, but they did the best they could. And, I, I felt like an only child, so we all we were all at boarding school. Um, we went to boarding school very young. Um, and when I was going off to secondary school, my sister was traveling. So I never really saw my brother and sister a lot. We were, we were all at school. You know, I could go home. We used to have these like long weekends called exiats. So we'd, I'd go home, you know, for a kind of Friday lunchtime until Sunday night. And I always had that Sunday night syndrome of going back to school. Like, and 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 when I went to school, it was really tough for me. So I was I was really badly bullied throughout pretty much my whole education. And because I what I thought of myself, people would affirm in me, you know, when people bullied me about how I looked, and you know, I because I believed everything that they were telling me. I felt so much shame that I wasn't able to talk about it. So I suffered in, in silence. Um, and I don't say that for like, oh, that's really hard. Like it is, it was really tough, but that's why today I have become who I've become. I find it very difficult to talk about what's going on for me. I find it really difficult to reach out um, because I'm so used to just dealing with things myself. Um, and I, that's really not a, a, a healthy coping mechanism. Like when I when I try and deal with things myself, it usually ends up in chaos and carnage and hurting not only myself, but the people around me. And I guess like, you know, it's taken me a long time to get to a place of, you know, I, I, I am worthy, you know, everyone deserves a place in this world. And it's really important to talk about what's going on for us and and I think it's important for our children 
to be able to, you know, at home, it wasn't like we sat around the table and um, it was, we used to talk about like politics and it was quite like airy fairy, like, how are you? And it'd be like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And it's like, what does fine yeah. even mean? That's not actually a feeling. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's really, you know, with Jack and Indy, when they finish school, you know, how are you? Have You know, how, how has school been today? What have you done? Who did you play with? Um, how are you, you know, I, I ask some particular questions, you know, like, how are you brave today? How are you kind today? So it gets some thinking of like, you know, okay, what can I do tomorrow? Um, how I might steal some of them techniques. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't get it. Trust me, uh, my, it's not perfect at all. Um, and actually, there's still a lot of undealt trauma with me. You know, it's my relationship with my son. I'm very, he's seven. Um, and he had his, he's at, well, from today gone into therapy. Um, and, you know, I, I spoke about the generational trauma and that I have passed some of that to my son. So it doesn't matter how much awareness I have and how much, you know, how, how knowledgeable I am around this stuff. There's there's a lot I don't know. Um, and, and I think that comes from more, I need to do more work on myself. Um, I don't think we're ever the finished product. I think we can always be doing more you know um and i'm i see myself in my son which is why i'm so detached from him because going close to my inner child is absolutely terrifying um and the times where i when i do connect to my son it's i'm in tears you know like i i i connect to him when he is sad he misses his father I'll, i can get on to talk about his father um later on but and I really connect everything that my son does and his behavioral challenges mirror exactly how I was as a child you know he's very restless he's very irritable he he's unable to communicate what's going on for him it takes him a you know a couple of days to be able to talk about what's going on for him but I for me one of the hardest things in my recovery is become is being a parent it's it's I find it so challenging and I'm not one of those mums that's like I like I love being a parent parenting's amazing it's really fucking hard <laughs> really hard and you know like before I don't know I know uh, Reese, you're a parent but you see other people with their kids and you're like oh I can't wait to be a mum oh. and no <laughs> one tells you no one says like get ready for it so the the reality is <laughs> like very different there's happen. nothing that can prepare you for it really is there's it? nothing that can prepare you for it and you just don't know how your kids are going to be like you just don't like um I try my best I don't always get it right but I think what's what my friends are always reassuring me about is that I'm consistent I'm consistent you know they know that mommy's going to pick them up from school Mummy's going to drop them to school. Mummy's there. And I guess maybe Jack is more, he feels safe around me. So I bear the brunt of a lot of his, the big feelings that are going on for him that he doesn't quite understand what they are. And him going into therapy is, I think, because I've, I've done work on myself and I've been in therapy myself and I work in the field of addiction, I can overanalyze everything. So today I was thinking okay I'm putting Jack into therapy 
is he going to grow up thinking that my mummy couldn't handle me so she had to look externally and all that stuff goes on and I just think it's I'm doing the best that I can um and when he's older I can I can explain that you know um I'm not trained to help a child that is suffering um Definitely. Yeah, I can completely understand that. It's there's no manuals, like you say. It is really, really difficult. You can only do your best, and that's what you're doing. And yeah, you're you're doing it on your own as well, which is even harder. Um, mm-hmm. sorry, Lewis, were you about to say something there? Yeah, again, apologies. I don't know if there is a delay. You're going to have to tell me if there is or not. Better now. better now okay yeah just when you were talking eddie at the start there around like your childhood and you you come from a a privileged background and you went to boarding school and maybe there wasn't the 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 love as much because there's obviously not going to be when you're at a boarding school and you're not getting that sort of nurture from your parents all of the time um how do you feel that has ultimately set you up for being a parent today so if, if you don't know how to be loved by your parents, maybe as much as you want to love your children as much. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think that s- sets you up to be the mum that you maybe want to be? Well, it's interesting because I always think that there's, you learn, so growing up, I thought as a parent, there's certain things that I would learn not, what not to do. So there's things that I would change as a parent, you know, and and that will carry, there'll be things that Jack and Indy will, will want to do that I didn't do that they wanted from me. Um, I just never, you're never prepared for any eventualities, you know. What I wanted is something that is so far from what I've got. Um, how do I think that set me up? I think, again, it was was I in La La Land? No. Um, but I was always destined to be a mother and I wanted to be a mother. And I maybe I did have this fantasy of how it would be like rather than... I'm, I'm very optimistic as well. So although I can overanalyze, I'm very positive. Um, and I guess, I, I guess being an addict, I am one that lives in fantasy quite a lot of the time. Yeah, our brain's almost always tricking us that the the best thing's always to come. Like the situation isn't necessarily what it is because there's always an opportunity of tomorrow. Well, I don't actually have a problem. I'm okay. The next day, it'll it'll be fine tomorrow. But then tomorrow never really comes when you're suffering with addiction because it it encapsulates your life and you are living that that nightmare every single day. Um, So, so, yeah, I I think... I think, like you know, my brother and sister. I mean, they in, they liked boarding school, so it's not everyone who goes to private school hated it and turns into you know children and adults that are you know have attachment issues or anxiety. You know, so it it teaches you a lot. I guess it teaches you mainly to become very independent. Yeah. Independent. <laughs> um, amongst other things but it it was that's my personal experience that doesn't have to be everybody's um there's huge privileges uh going to you know private school in terms of smaller classes 
lots of sport, um, holidays abroad. You know, there's there's there are, you know, um, some great things, and I, I I feel like I I actually feel really grateful that I had that experience. But and I think you know, even though I was, I think that difficulty for me was that I was bullied and didn't have my mother. Bullying can go on anywhere. It can it goes on everywhere, doesn't it? Whether it's the state system or, you know, in a, in a playground, <laughs> if a child's homeschooled, it can happen anywhere. Um, but I think as a as a as a, a child with what I was going through, I needed my mother, and I didn't have my mother. Um, and that's that's not her fault at all. She I didn't talk about it. My parents believed that they were doing the right thing. Um, and it's like going back to what I said about Jack. It's like, I believe that I'm doing the right thing by him. But when he's older, he might say, I, that wasn't okay for me. So you just, I just don't know. Yeah, I think to, to what Reese said, you can only try to do your very best. And as, as long yeah. as I think you make decisions based on what you believe to be the right, what your intentions are to hopefully set Jack up for the happiest, most successful, mm -hmm. whatever success means for him, loving caring safe life then that's all we can necessarily do as yeah. parents so no, I, th I think you're absolutely um right with that one in terms of your so, so you said that your early start or your early sort of crux with addiction was around food um yeah. was that like almost like a, a comfort thing we, we've discussed food quite a lot on the podcast and um maybe being unhealthy in terms mm -hmm. of overeating so ethan one of our 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 usual hosts he openly admits he's got a real problem with with food um where he's actually getting uh, and job who's the producer you met before they have a really sort of bad problem with, with eating and i think a lot of it comes down to that that comfort or um habitual thing of well what else is there to do or no matter what no one loves me anyway almost so i might as well just eat because it gives me some level of endorphin to to make me feel a little bit happier yeah, and I think the substance or whatever it is you choose, you know, whether it's gambling, cannabis, heroin, food, it's like that's actually irrelevant. Although consequences with whatever we use can be different. It's why. Why do we do it? Not what do we do. It's what, why are we doing it? Um, and the more we kind of get our heads around why, um people can start to get better. Um, for me, it was that kind of easing comfort of just being out of myself and not sitting with what was going on. And it can be as simple as, I remember speaking to my therapist about like, why do I keep going back to something that makes me so unhappy? And it's that quick, it's like, you know, like tote, like a bagel with butter. And it's like, oh, it's that that first bite does the damage. And then it's like, oh, fuck it. I might as well finish the whole thing. <laughs> Just justify it. And then it's, I'd rationalize and then go, oh, I'll start on, I'll start on Monday. It was always a Monday. Like, okay, Monday morning. It's like, actually, you can start your day at any point. You can have a bad morning, but have a great afternoon. But my head is... I'll start on Monday. I'll start on the first of the month. Oh, it's Christmas, New Year's resolution. And it, that, that none of those times ever, ever came. They never come. <laughs> um, no, that is think, very true. 
I think food is definitely one of the hardest things. Um, we have to eat to survive. Um, I'm not saying coming, I, for me, coming off drugs was quite simple. It was staying clean. Um, but, you know, you can, with drugs, you've got to ring a dealer, go and get them, you know, but food, it's like breakfast, lunch, dinner, you know, and snack, you know, whatever, however many times you want to snack a day if you're eating five meals a day. You, we have to eat to survive. So how do you control something if you're an overeater? So if I, I'm a restrictor binger, so I can go a couple of days without eating. But once I eat, I then, it's, it's I can't stop. Or I'm obsessing about food, you know, it's, but I think that's also a society thing. It's like, how many people are like, oh, let's go out for dinner on Friday. Or let's go out for food. Oh, what's in the office? It's like, what are we having for lunch today? Oh, what's everyone having for dinner tonight? It's all centered around food. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it is for you, but I, you know. It, it yeah, definitely I mean, it's is. Food's a massive thing for all of us, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I, 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 work, I work with like quite a few people, and like, as soon as dinner time comes around, everyone's, you know, in like the kitchen area, prepping their food, and everyone's always like, oh, what have you got? What have you got? What have you got? And you got the people <laughs> who haven't brought any food in, and they're like, you know, they're frothing at the mouth because they just want a bit of everyone's food. It's all that's on your mind, isn't it? Especially when yeah. you're hungry. Yeah. All you think about is, is just eating. Yeah, and as a as a parent, you plan. You've got to plan, like you've got to do a food shop. Okay, what meals are we having? Like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you know, like Yeah. It's just all set. So it, that has been a real challenge for me. And it's one that I don't think I'll ever kind of come to grips with. Cause the more if I I've got a personal trainer and so when I when I started using substances, I was using cocaine, quite a lot of cocaine. And I once I noticed the physical effects from that, um, I was like, this is a tough, this is great, you know. So um, was this the losing weight you're on about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I lost a lot of weight. So in the space of like six to nine months, I'd lost 10 stone. Um, I was using heavy, heavy cocaine use and the benefits were weight loss. Um, and at the time, my parent, I was living with my flatmate and um, she was really concerned and I'd, you know, play on, you know, my food, you know, turned into a bit of a foodie and actually it was, you know, my using, but I just didn't want my family to know. But my mum's never smoked a cigarette in her life. So my upbringing was very sheltered. Um, and... I think it shocked her. I mean, when I when I first kind of she confronted me about my addiction and said, you know, I really hope you're not smoking cannabis. And I just thought, oh. <laughs> if only you, <laughs> mother, I am not smoking cannabis. I can confirm yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. But and I think that's I think my food and drugs go hand in hand so it's like I get, I get to a place where drugs become my solution to my food but then it's a, a vicious cycle I've, I, I know that feeling. I've actually got myself in a little bit of a bad routine with food at the minute I've decided to start going and just going to Morrison's on a night time and just buying any amount of snacks biscuits, chocolate, crisps anything you can imagine and just sitting on the set of jellies, chocolate just 
eating away at loads of stuff. And it, it was yeah. about over about 10 days. I'd done it every single night. And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't feel great. Yeah. I need to, I need to change it up. And it's so easy just to get into a routine of bad things. And mm-hmm. that's what, that, that's exactly what the alcohol was for me. And it's just routines. And I'm terrible for routines. Yeah. If I get into a bad one, then that's it. And if I stop my run, then I get out of that routine. That's why I need to break it as soon as I can. Otherwise, I'll stop doing the run. I'll start doing the bad things. And then it's just a vicious cycle, really. It just seems insane to go back to something that makes me so unhappy. Like, why? I look at those people who are addicted to the gym and I'm like, why can't that? Why do I have to look for the, you know, why do I always lean towards the unhealthy? you know, things (laughs) don't make me feel good. But there's, I know discomfort very well. And I think there's comfort in discomfort. I recognize that more than feeling, feeling good. Um, But I, you know, I've got a personal trainer and she really helps me um, to stay consistent and or try and stay consistent, you know, so I center my meals every day, what I'm eating. And she knows when I'm not on it because I'm not sending her messages. Um, but yeah, that's uh, it is. Yeah, I think that's is, a. I think that's a really big thing is actually having someone when you're struggling with addiction or you're trying to, or maybe you've you've accepted it, you've spoke to people, but having people like your personal trainer who can actually hold you to account a little bit. So mm-hmm. if you if they know that when you're absolutely on it, you're messaging. It means when you stop messaging, they can reach back out to you and go, everything okay? And there's almost that that part, and this is a lot of why we do the podcast, is this podcast is as much an accountability piece for all of us. We can't come on here every week and be like, men, look after your health. Men, speak up. Men, like, don't do stupid shit. Well, if we keep doing stupid shit, we look like a bunch of hypocrites on a podcast. So... Like having things in your life to hold you to account to make you actually question, am I making the right decisions? I think that's super important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I should talk about more my addiction. Have we spoken about food? Um, yeah. So I left school. I really struggled um, academically at school. Um, I didn't get, I think I got, I, I got two GCSEs, English and rs i mean who the fuck uses rs now but anyway um uh, apologies (laughs) i i I definitely don't but i got i I got it's one of my a stars were in a re and it was one of those where i kicked my parents like oh well done you're doing really well and they're like how did you get an a star in re like that's just not a thing we are not religious i don't like i've never read anything but but I, i very quickly understood it was um, and I know I'm absolutely sidetracking here. It is the, an opinion. You just write an opposing opinion and maybe compare it to another. And that was it. So it's mm. essentially made me really good at being a podcast. I've decided because I listen to, to you talk and then compare it to Reese's and go, oh, well, this is my experience. So Ari <laughs> has made me a podcast host. Yeah. Sorry yes. for absolutely interrupting your lack of uh, greater than English and Ari. Um, so I really struggled academically and my school was merging with, a, I went to an all girls school um, and it it was closing down and merged with another school and they basically had no, the teachers were like, we don't know what she's going to do for her A-levels. 
um, it's a real struggle for her. So my parents, we I pulled me out of school um, and I ended up going to this local college in Newbury, which was an absolute disaster. I mean, you can imagine, I'm, I'm well-spoken now, but I was a lot more well-spoken. Um, and it, it was just a recipe for disaster. Um, but going back, before I started taking substances and when I was at school, I used to drink a lot. And whenever I drank, I drank to excess. So I drank to blackout. I, I don't like alcohol. I don't like the taste of it. Um, but when I drank, it was to blackout. And I always knew that I couldn't control my alcohol consumption. Um, and friends used to say, like, why don't you drink? I was like, you don't want to see me drinking. Like, I don't like it anyway, but... Um, like I'll ruin the party I just don't you won't you know it doesn't suit me um and I found substances so cannabis was a big you know that what kind of went through ran through my whole addiction um and stimulants um cocaine was a big part of my addiction um kind of the party party drugs and um, I went to, so I went to college in Newbury and that didn't last very long at all. Um, and then I moved to Oxford and did a business course in Oxford. Um, and at 17, I moved to London. Um, and that was pretty big for me, actually, because I'd never, I think I had my first phone when I was like 14 years old, 13, 14, had a mobile, got my first mobile phone. Um and went on my first train at, I think, 15. <laughs> like, I, I mean, it was very, very sheltered. Um, and so being introduced to going to London with, like, living with a flatmate, I was just like, sweet, <laughs> I can do what I like. Um, <laughs> I wasn't working. I had access to unlimited amounts of money. I had my mother's credit card. I had an allowance. So it was just, like, cool. Um um, and I, my using was really, really out of control. So I was using every day. Um, but I thought it, I guess it, for me, it was that it was normal. I think, you know, I was around that I had a lot of acquaintances where we were all doing the same thing. And so it was our normal, you know, we'd meet up, we'd have a laugh, we'd go clubbing. Um, and quite before I ended up in treatment um I don't know if you know but methadrone MCAT came out yeah, on the yeah. scene um a plant drug yeah it was awful and the smell was horrendous and but it was cheap it was like poor man's crack um <laughs> that took me to my knees very quickly um my addiction was very hidden from my family so they were living in the country my brother was at uni. My sister was living in Italy. Um, so no one really knew what was, no one knew what was going on. Um, I was kind of left to my own devices. And I when, when I started, when my, so my friends, you know, did their A-levels and finished school and, you know, wanted to go traveling. So they'd be on their gap year and they stopped you know, they kind of started building their life where they went to uni and and I just thought, like, what's going on here? And I remember, you know, I there was one time where I'd not slept for six days, seven days. 
um, and I literally went psychotic. And I remember looking quite often, you know, you know, when the, it it's like five, six in the morning and the birds start singing and you're like, oh, God, shut the curtains. Um, but I used to look at people walking to work and thinking, you have no idea, like, how good I've got it. Like, look at you, mum, going to work, you know. And I guess part of me wanted that. I felt I was quite a lost child. I didn't know who I was, what I was doing. Um, um, but very, my using progressed very quickly. Um, and my mum and dad caught wind of it because of, I was I lost. I had a really, really nice flat um, uh, with a girlfriend of mine. And she was she was studying. She was doing an art course at Wimbledon. Um, her boyfriend was living with us as well um, and his mother passed away and th that she wasn't around in the flat and I caused complete havoc and anyone could come in at any time it was just chaos and anyway cut long story short we were evicted from that flat um, and both made homeless um, and I thought at the time it's and then I was going to move into my other friend's flat in in North uh, Clapham um, and she was like, I can't have you living with me. And that's kind of when my mum caught wind of it. She thought, why are you not moving into this girl's house? And her mum contacted my mum and said, look, we're worried about Eddie. Um, um, so that was the first time my mum kind of sat me down and spoke to me. And I just kind of, I denied it. You know, I didn't want, I was so terrified of, of their response. And, and I, I probably didn't want to stop. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't want Did them you know to have... Go on. When, 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 you, when you think back to that period of time, um, did you just get, were, were you really good at like, um, there was the, the fun party Eddie who was out doing that version of yourself. But then when it came to your, the people who you love, care about, you were able just to almost act as a completely different person and yeah, turn, it, turn it on. I'm a complete chameleon. <laughs> Yeah, um, I can be anyone you want me to be. So whatever group I was around, I would change into because I had no identity. I didn't know mm -hmm. who I was. You know, I didn't yeah. I, I lost myself. I didn't even find myself. I, I was always quite an, I was an unhappy child. Um, yeah. but when I found drugs, it gave me this new sense, this false confidence um mm -hmm. and I guess I just lost myself even more you know I really really deteriorated um I was six yeah. and a half stone when I ended up in treatment I was really 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 ill bloody hell um yeah. and I remember I, think... going, I hadn't seen my mum for ages and I went to see her and she just at the door was like where's my daughter gone like where mm -hmm. has she gone and and I said oh you know I'm fine and when 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 I couldn't move into my friends in Clapham North and I, I, you know, blagged them and said, you know, a couple of friends going to India. I said, I think it'd be really good for me to get out of London and go traveling for a month. Um, and that was great. I had a good time in India. I went for six weeks, I think. Um, but whilst I was out there, I brought back a lot, you know, uh, many uh, <laughs> copious amounts of Valium that you can buy on the streets um and again i didn't even realize the risks of that you know bringing back a controlled substance stopping off at dubai airport um 
with copious amounts of Valium to London. But I guess kind of naivety is bliss, right? Because if I did know, I probably would have looked very guilty at the airport. Yeah, you did well. Um, <laughs> yeah. So everyone, Eddie's bringing out a book uh, next year. It's How to Smuggle Drugs from India and Dubai into the UK. It will be available on Amazon for $9.99. We'll do a special code at the bottom. That is that is absolutely wild, that story. I know. Could it be a completely different story as well if this podcast, yeah, if you had a big court in Dubai? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know, I know, I know. Um, and I came back, went back to London, and obviously, if anyone understands addiction, travelling was not the solution. Um, and I, I came back to London, and I was living on my friend's sofa, and um, I just carried on, but added an extra habit to the cocaine and was using you know, copious amounts of Valium um, until it came to a serious head where I was really unhappy. Um, my parents were incredibly worried. I think at that stage, my kind of my brother and sister probably intervened. Um, and my parents sat me down and said, you need to get help for this. So we had a family that we had a family doctor at the time. Um, and I was honest about what I was using. Um, and my parents said to me, you can either come and live with us or go to treatment. And I was like, there's no way I am going to live with you because if I go and live with you, I won't be able to do anything that I'm doing. But what I can do is go to South Africa um, and deal with some undealt trauma. Um, and come back a new person and I, I think I was I knew nothing about addiction I didn't understand addiction I thought addicts were people that lived on the street addicts were people that injected heroin I just had you know alcoholics that were living on a park bench I had no understanding I thought it was for like the rock stars and the rich and famous you know um, and what I've learned today is it can affect anyone from any walks of life you know whether you're a billionaire to you know, someone that's got, you know, not a pot to piss in. So, um, and when I went to treatment uh, for the first time, I remember the, the the therapist, he said to me, he said, you know that you can never use again. And I was like, what? I'm 19. Like, I'm going to be really boring. What? How am I going to have fun? Um, and I just couldn't grasp. I, I just couldn't grasp the concept of it. And it took me many years to re to fully understand my addiction and I had to go through some quite traumatic events to really like understand the gravity of what I suffer with. And I wouldn't recommend that to anyone. That was just my journey. Um, At this point, when you, when you were 19, had you realised you had a problem yet? It's interesting though, because, well, yes, to alcohol, <clears throat> but not to drugs. But I think alcohol, I, I'm someone who's very controlling. Um, cocaine made me feel in control. Alcohol didn't. So I wonder if that's why I didn't continue to drink alcohol. Um, I liked the way cocaine made me feel. Um, and I didn't, if I'm really honest, looking back, I didn't want to stop. I didn't want to continue what I was doing but I didn't want to stop. But 
I don't have yeah. an off button. So at that time, I didn't realize that I can't just use now and then. It was like all the time or not at all. And I hadn't really you... sorry. sorry, again, apologies. I think there's a delay on me again, and I'm sorry for that because I'm I'm starting to talk and then you're talking. But if the do you know when you look back to that and you say you were enjoying what you were doing, but you didn't want to stop? What were the enjoyment parts of it? Like, if you look back at what were the times that you look back and think, actually, that was a really good time. Or do you think you're just enjoying almost thriving in the chaos of, wow, there's yeah. so much excitement because it was so busy? I think, uh, yeah, avoiding myself. I wasn't having to face reality. I had no responsibility. I wasn't doing anything. My life was pretty chilled. It wasn't chilled, yeah. but do you know what I mean? It wasn't, I didn't, it was just like, it, that became my normal. I didn't know anything else. Mm -hmm. And I thought that I had a really good group of friends. Like there were a few of us that were doing the same thing until I lost everyone around me. And I was suddenly like, where's, where's everyone gone? <clears throat> you know, everyone had had enough of me. Um, but I thought that there was a group of us doing it and it was, it was not, I thought it was the norm. I used to put a lot of it down to being normal as well. It's like drinking. I mm. went to EA when I was 21 because my mom said she thought I had a problem with it. So when I went to EA, I didn't want, I didn't, I didn't go because I wanted to be there. I didn't go because I thought I needed to be there. And when I was there, I just made excuses as to why I shouldn't be there. So I know, I know exactly the, like the feeling you're saying, like I'd, I already had a picture of what them people were going to be like in the room. And when they started saying stuff, one person said that she was walking a kid to school and she was drinking, she'd popped to the shop and bought a bottle of vodka and she was drinking that. And I was like, well, that's not me. I'm just going out after work yeah. and partying. And everyone does it. Everyone goes out. I'm only, I think I was 20, like I say, 21 at the time. So that was the normal for everyone. So I, I was good at making excuses. It's the preconceived idea, isn't it, of what an addict is or who an addict yeah. is. So from the background that I came from, trying to from, to accept that I was maybe this kind of, you know, um, creature that didn't deserve to be, do you know what I mean? Just this, this, this judgment of somebody, it was like, oh, I'm definitely not like them. Like, ooh, like I was, you know, very s snobby. I still can be, you know, I'm quite judgmental but um I judge but I'm also very like very compassionate and very like re recovery's taught me so much and I'm so grateful for um I feel like I've become who I've meant to become and I am who I am and it's not all about impressing my family and being around you know the Joneses and compete com you know like compete with or do something for somebody else it's like actually I do what I want today it's not about you know um standing up there with who people want me to be or who people think I should be or do you know what I mean yeah mm -hmm. uh, and it's made me who I am today like I I've learned so much from the people that I spend my time with and um I going to school with I still keep in touch with some of my friends from school um but I've just learned so much like being with people from all walks of life I think has been a really humbling experience for me 
um, and has taught me so much, opened my eyes up to a lot. And I'm really grateful that I'm not stuck in this bubble of um, La La Land. Like I've experienced some really harsh realities. Um, and that is because of addiction, yes. Do I regret it? No, not at all. If it wasn't for my children, I wouldn't be where I am today. Um, my ideas for the business came from having children and wanting to be the best mother and provide to them what my father provided for me, which is no way on a similar league, but it's about, for me, it's my father did the best and he was able to provide and I wanted to do the same with my children. Um, um, when I, so I went to treatment, came out, I was introduced to a fellowship there, um, 12-step fellowship. Um, and I remember going to a meeting and looking around thinking like, what on earth is this? Um, you know, like people with tattoos and thinking like, this is listening to, you know, people injecting smack and crack. I thought, nah, this is not for me. Like turning my nose up. You don't know where I'm from. Like, um, you're scum of the earth. Like this isn't for me. <laughs> um, and I, I did complete treatment. I did three months of treatment. Um, and I came back to London. I moved into a dry house, so secondary housing, and which they call a bridge to normal living. So you're in society, but you've also got that support. Um, and there's lots of suggestions that people make in the fellowship, you know, like don't get into a relationship because that can be a good avoidance. You know, as an addict, I feel very intensely and, you know, like I can, someone can smile at me and I'm like, we're getting married. And I'm, you know, that fantasy of like Maldives, <laughs> like, buy a million pound house, just, you know, like I feel very intensely. And when I love, I really love. And I put my heart and soul into my relationships, whether that be in an intimate relationship or a friendship. Um, so they suggest stay out of a relationship, you know, like learn to sit with yourself, you know, manage your kind of yourself. Um, because again, a relationship can become something external that's easy to focus on to avoid yourself. Anyway, I ignored all of that and got into a relationship that ended. I relapsed and um and I relapsed because that you know, being rejected as a child in my friendship groups and at school, that passed on to getting into a relationship, him ending it with me, that childhood rejection, <gasps> you know, and I couldn't, it comes down to me not being able to manage how I felt. And so the solution to that was to drink. Um, and when I, that first relapse that I had, taught me so much about addiction and I still wasn't ready to stop but I was like shit this is this is you know when they talk about it in meetings about the obsession and the compulsion I couldn't I didn't grasp it until I had that relapse experience which I do not recommend because you don't like it, it, relapse you don't know when you're going to come back from it a lot of people don't make it back from a relapse how long had you been sober for and clean for what, since when when you had your relapse? About six months. Okay. Um, yeah. And 
again, I was, you know, young, it was really difficult for me. And I, I remember going to meetings and people used to, experienced members used to say, like, hold tight to the seat because you will be going to funerals. And it all came down to this, you know, I'm young. It's, you know, um, only old people, you know, people who have done so much damage to their bodies are going to die. And my the first experience of death was my friend Freddie. He was 17 when he died. He injected for the first time. And we were living together in that dry house. Um, and he, he died. He overdosed. And I thought, shit, like, okay. Um, but it... it you have to be ready to stop you know you yeah. can be looking at your friends that are really struggling with addiction and you know beg them like please look at what you're doing but it's addicts they have to be ready you know and and there's there's many many rock bottoms because I believe there's trap doors in a basement where it would just take someone lower and lower you know um and the cycle of my relapses continued and I ended up back in treatment and just a, a vicious cycle really of relapse and going to meetings and listening to the differences and not struggling to identify with people because I wasn't listening to why I was listening to what. Um, and sitting in meetings and a lot of people were, you know, heroin addicts and crack cocaine addicts and, and that wasn't my story. And I just thought, I don't belong here. This is this, mm -hmm. this for me, you know, but I was going because I was, you know, met some amazing people and got some good solid relationships. Um, and it's all a bit of a blur, but I moved in with my best friend at the time. And um, whilst I was living her, I, I, I met someone who, um, Funnily enough, used to share a room in a dry house with my ex-partner uh, that broke up with me, the first relapse, um, Steve. And I spent 10 years with Steve. I've got children with Steve. Um, and for the first time ever, I really got an understanding of addiction um, because he was, so he was 18 months clean when I first met him. Uh, but what I didn't know was when we started getting into a relationship, he had relapsed um, and he's a IV heroin crack cocaine user. Um, and he was using and I knew nothing that was I was introduced to a whole new world of. Like, I, I can't even explain it, really. It was just this. it was like flying into space and just. Uh, seeing a whole new different kind of world that I knew nothing about um, that I was introduced to. Um, and did you want to say something, Reese? I think Lewis. I was going to say, was that the severity of the drugs? Is that what you mean? Mm. Like the heroin versus cocaine and weed, like it's yeah. the impact that it had on people. I think with, with stimulants, there's no... Um, there's no physical withdrawal symptoms. I mean, the benzos, when I first went into detox before I went to South Africa for rehab, I detoxed off 300 mil of Valium. And I was really unwell during my detox. And I was saying to the, uh, the, the nurses in the hospital, I was like, what is wrong with me? My sheets are soaking wet. My body hurts. I'm throwing up. 
I, I can't sleep. I'm restless. And she was like, you're de you're, it's called a detox. And I was like, what the fuck's a detox? Like, just, again, no, no understanding, you know. And, but I think when your heroin causes severe withdrawal symptoms, um, and that's why people go back to it when they're that's why people can't stop using that's why people commit crimes because that's it's like you know you have a headache you take a paracetamol the headache goes you're a heroin addict you get sick what are you going to take to get well you're going to take heroin so that's why heroin addicts get into the vicious cycle um i guess it was what why was it so harrowing because of what that drug did to him who what that drug made him become but also the fear of leaving steve was far greater than staying in the relationship so being with i was clean for a year in our first year of the relationship and in that first year of the relationship with him i was begging on begging outside laundrette to get money for his addiction um because I couldn't see him ill, couldn't see him ill. Um, and I speak to a lot of family members because um, we've adapted, got a family program now. And so many mothers and partners feel so ashamed that they're funding their loved one's addiction. But, and I can really empathize with that because I funded a lot of Steve's addiction because to for the sake of the argument and for the sake of the constant bombarding for 20 quid I was just like do you know what have it take it and then it's like oh th it, there's no longer this dialogue of no you're not having anything please please you know it's just like have it you know it's like a child isn't it when they're it's like it's really important to be consistent but sometimes you're like do you know what fuck it do what you want, <laughs> do what you want. The, the sweets <laughs> when they're kicking <laughs> off in there in the shop <laughs> yeah give me a break so that cycle continued um, and I relapsed after a year. We were living in London. I wasn't doing meetings at the time. I just put my all into this relationship and I was this adrenaline of controlling the addiction and um, trying to fix him and trying to control his addiction. And um, I relapsed because I thought if you, and I was really resentful because I thought, well, if you can do it, I can, why can't I do it? So when uh, you relapsed, did you relapse to heroin or to cocaine? No, no, not at this point. Um, I drank, I was uh, using some uh, sub uh, prescription medication. Um, so that was the other thing. I was very good at manipulating psychiatrists. So a girl that I was living with in a dry house, um, she had bipolar and she was given a certain type of medication and she always looked quite like drowsy. And I thought, mm. so I'd go to my psychiatrist. I told him that I was fit. Some days I felt quite good, elated. Other days I felt really low. And he was like, ah, I know what you've got. And he diagnosed me with something called cyclothymia, which is a rapid form of bipolar. So bipolar's like long stints of, you know, depressive and manic whereas mine were like short stints and he prescribed me the medication that I wanted um so I was abusing that in my relapse as well but I think a psychiatrist is going to give you anything if you're paying them 400 quid an hour and you see them for 10 minutes they're going to give you anything aren't they? um 
And that didn't really continue. I guess my addiction was Steve. My addiction was controlling his addiction. And we were living in London. Uh, I'd moved to Battersea. Um, and I was, uh, I was 20, 21 at, at this point. And my parents said, look, we're not paying for you anymore to do nothing. Like, this just, it's not, like, you, get, you can get a job or you can come and live with us in the countryside. Now, they had no idea. I mean, I hid my addiction from them. And they had no idea. I mean, Steve's addiction was secret from so many people. I didn't tell anyone about it because of the judgment, um, because of people saying, you know, you need to leave him. You need, you know, I just didn't. I kept, I, that was enabling his addiction, really, just keeping it a secret. Um, but And had, you, had your parents met Steve? Yeah, they had met Steve. That was funny, actually. That was quite looking back on it. Oh, I wouldn't do that. Come on, you're going to have to tell us. You're going to have to uh, tell yeah. us. Well, I think where you know Steve's from quite a different background. <laughs> um, not only is he from a different background, he was a chronic heroin, crack, cocaine user. Um, very much looked it. <laughs> Um, and there I was taking him to a beautiful country house to meet my very well-spoken parents. <laughs> um, and it was just, a, oh, I can't look, I feel so, it's embarrassing looking back on it. <laughs> and Steve had all these stories of, you know, prison and um, my father was fascinated by it. <laughs> so, just did, a, did Steve again, have... Did Steve have that ability to be a different version of himself as well, though? Did, could he? Did oh he yeah, go very and try much. And play so. a, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. He's very. Steve's very good. At, he's again very good. He's you know he is. He's very very charismatic, very polite, very funny. But he can't like when someone's using visually that visually you could tell that he was not a well man. But mm -hmm. they had no idea about what you know, nothing around addiction. <laughs> they didn't witness me. Um, and Steve and I went, we moved to London, uh, moved from London to my parents' house. Um, and it was like, it was hell. Um, so we were living in the middle of the countryside. The nearest town was Newbury, which was a 15 minute drive. Um, Neither of us were working. Steve had a huge habit. I think he was using like 60, 70 quid a day IV. Um, so he started stealing from my parents' house. Money started going missing. Th like it was just a, a disaster. And and one weekend, um, my parents actually set, well, my dad set him up. So we went away to a wedding and my dad set Steve up, so he put money somewhere. And when we came home, the money had gone. And and we sat around the kitchen table. So my sister, not sure if my brother was there, but my mother, my father, and we Steve wasn't there. And um, my my brother said, "Look, I'm not comfortable with Steve living here." Um, and I said, "Cool, we'll go." Um, and I remember seeing the look in my mother's eyes, like. She was so frightened for me. She was so, so scared. And it's like the power of addiction, if it's a man, a drug, whatever it is, like that became, that was more important to me than my family. 
Um, I just couldn't, he became my everything, you know. Um, I think that's because I believed I could never find someone else. I loved him very much, but I, at the time I thought I wasn't worth anything more. Um, I didn't think that I'd ever find anyone else. And I, I, I think most, I think, I don't know if I, I'll speak for myself, but when I'm with someone, I never think that I'm going to find anyone else. It's really hard letting go of a relationship, for me anyway. Um, and throughout the kind of period of living at my parents, it was it was hell. And there's, there's a few times where Steve has, you know, I've had to resuscitate him. There's one time that I haven't been able to. I've had to ring an ambulance, but... I remember one time he told me that he had a, this day's work or some agency work and I couldn't get hold of him. Um, he'd taken the car. So I had my parent, my mum wasn't there and I couldn't, I couldn't leave. And I thought like, what, what am I doing? Where is he? Why isn't he answering? Um, and I said, like, I'm CID. A lot of my friends will, like, you know, those women that are just like find everything out. I, I feel like every woman ever on the planet, like they, they are so good at just knowing everything. I think it's so. Really I'm one of those women. Like if I, yeah, if my friend gets into a relationship, she'll be like, "This is the name. Look at that." CID cult. Yeah. In this, in this instance, uh, where it appeared. It paid well though, didn't it? To have that, yeah, yeah, detective. Anyway, I thought, ah, find my iPhone. Let me track him because he had his his mini iPad was um, iPad Mini was at, at the house. Uh, <clears throat> so I tracked him, and he was in Tesco car park. So I had to get a taxi. Um, and at this point, I think he he just wasn't. Steve used to do this thing where he knew that I would go mental, so he would just hang up the phone all the time. And I always used to say to him, like, just, you know that you're okay, but I don't know you're okay. Just, like, I, you, anything could have happened. And he was hanging up, hanging up, wasn't answering. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go and get him. I'm going to find him. So I got a taxi. Um, and he was slumped over the, I saw the car in Tesco car park, and he was slumped over the clutch. And he'd overdosed. Um, and I had to give him mouth to mouth. And he came around and he said to me, I can't do this anymore. Um, I mean, he was off his face, but he, I took him to, he was like, I can't, I've got to do something about this. And I took him to the local drug services um, to get him onto a script. Um, and I'd introduced him to meetings in London because he always hated them. Um, but I had tried to take him to some in London and he wasn't ready for them. Um, and it, when we were in Newbury, he was like, I've, I need to do something different. You know, I've got to try out some meetings. So we found a local meeting in Oxford um, and went to that meeting and um, kind of fell in love with the area. I mean, I've always really liked Oxford. My school was very close by to it. Um, so I knew Oxford quite well. It's a bit like a fluffy London um and I thought what better than I was so my relapse wasn't I was using for about six months um there were times where I used to say to Steve I will pay for you if you let me have some and 
he was adding, he was like, I cannot introduce you to something that has destroyed my life. Um, I mean, he ended up on it because he'd lost uh, st his son, James, was a still was stillborn. Um, about eight months, eight months, I think James was. Um, and his ex-girlfriend had to give birth. Um, so that's how he ended up taking heroin. Um, but he said, I can't, I just can't, you know, you're just, there's no way you're touching it. And there were times where I'd say, look, I'll pay, I'll give you, I'll buy whatever you want if you let me have a go. And he'd be like, all right. But obviously he would take it all. It wasn't, you know. But that that's incredibly um, human of him, lovely of him. Yeah. Like it, in all of this chaos in his life, he still had that ability to be super protective, loving, yeah, protective of, of you. And, and I think that this is a truly harrowing story. Like I'm hearing it struggling to be a presenter on this podcast because I'm actually fully engrossed in your story. And that the fact that he was able to be even compassmentous to understand the situation greater than himself. So his addiction, whilst it was clearly hammering his own life, but mm. the fact he was still able to to look out for you, I, th I think there's, there's a lot. To I be think said he that. he did want to stop. He just couldn't. It it wasn't like he was particularly enjoying it. I think those days were over. I think those days were over pretty quickly for him. You know, he spent a lot of time in prison. He's lost yeah. a lot of his friends. His ex girlfriend um, died as well through overdose. So, um, it was crap. He didn't, you know. And I was quite a kind of well-kept person that was, I think for me, he saw what he saw was innocence, you know, and he didn't want to take that from me. Um, anyway, we moved out of my parents' house and we were in Oxford. Um, we moved to Oxford. Um, and on the 26th, well, the 25th of June, 2013, I made a decision to get clean. So I thought like move to Oxford, new life. Um, and at that point, Steve had sta stabilized. He was on a script and he was doing well and he started doing meetings and he ended up going to treatment again. Um, but his cycle of relapse continued. Um, and there were parts where sometimes it would be really, really bad. And, you know, parts where he was doing OK. Um, the consequences in terms of, you know, there were, he was living in Barnet. So when we first got together, he was living in Barnet before we moved in together. And, you know, there were times where he was in so much debt that I would be threatened by the drug dealers. Um, the, you know, the uh, one instant they came around to the house, it was flat. And they said, give us your money or we'll, you know, that a gun basically to me um, will harm her kind of thing. So um which is just when I look back on it I you know like talking about kind of begging outside a laundrette and it's that's so degrading isn't it it's you know it's really sad um lo looking back on you know losing my dignity um yeah I think that's what addiction is though isn't it though yeah yeah addiction yeah. takes so much away from mm -hmm. you as a human it just it changes you completely and it, you, you aren't you. You've become yeah. something completely different mm. when you're in that addiction. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we yeah, moved to Oxford. I, was, I got a job um, and Steve was 
what became his problem what became his solution to his problem was you know he'd get clean and then he'd end up on taking subutex um and that's that, that just for so you like methadone uh is yeah. a, a substitute but it's a different so subutex is a blocker depending on how much you take um but methadone is in liquid form and it's called buprenorphine, but Subutex is tablet form. Um, so it just holds, it makes heroin addicts basically feel well. So rather than taking the substance, they can be prescribed something by the doctor so that they don't have to go, if they can't go out and score, they've got something that holds them for the day. Some right. people are really good at sticking to scripts and some people aren't. Um, Steve was pretty good at sticking to a subutex script, but he would abuse the subutex, so he would sniff them rather than put them under his tongue. And but for to me, that wasn't really an issue because I was like, as long as you're not creating complete carnage. Um. Anyway, he always longed to be a father, um, and I, when I was twenty, I I fell pregnant um, or twenty one. Um, and he really wanted the child. And I said, there's no way I'm having a child with you. Um, you know, you're using. Um, I'm not bringing a child into this world. And it's certainly not at my age either. Um, and he was destined to be a father. And I always believed that Steve would die from addiction. But I always wanted to give him his dream, which was to be a father before he died. And going to treatment last year, I my my therapist kind of pointed out and how sad that like that, that I put other people's needs in front of my own that much that I'll give someone a baby. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he was he was clean. He was nine when Jack was born. He was nine months clean, so he was clean when or it must have been a bit after. Was I? I think I was. I can't remember, but it. Yeah, he must have been um, just under a year clean um, when Jack was born. And um, the day Jack was born, Steve relapsed. Um, and I can, I can never get my head around that, ever. Like giving something that he's always longed for the most beautiful what should be the most beautiful moment um of your life he relapsed and i found out when i got home from the hospital so it was quite a traumatic birth um and the flat was spotless and i thought something's not right here and like and steve came in i was lying on the bed and he said i've i've relapsed i was like what <laughs> are you fucking joking? Like I've got this newborn next to me. And I just thought, oh my God, that's it. My life is over. Like I couldn't understand why. And I still don't know to this day why, whether it's because he can't take responsibility, whether he's because he's inherently that selfish. I don't know. Like maybe he felt really elated and couldn't handle that feeling. I, I don't know. Um, I was just about to ask that if, if you knew any idea what it was that caused it because it's, it's, it's horrible. Yeah, you, I, I can feel, yeah, yeah, it's, I, I don't know how to speak. I genuinely don't. It's, it's it really, 
Don't grips is have a yeah, I didn't relapse anything when he was born, but like my third son I was um born in July. I nearly never got to meet him because of addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I ended up standing in the middle of the train train lines when my partner was when she was pregnant. Um that's crazy. There's no mm-hmm. real yeah. You kind of put you kind of put words in it. You could. Sorry, yeah. I I think for 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 me listening to that story, and it's probably because we've all grown up on like Disney films and romance and love. So hearing your story to this point has been like he's got himself clean. You have a baby, and even though I know there's more after the story, and I know it, that like my my body's like or my mind's willing it on that. Well, he got himself clean, and like you have a family and there's so much love and happiness in that moment where mm-hmm. I really feel sorry for him in that moment that he wasn't able to control it or be in control or whatever that might be. Yeah. Because he had everything that he could ever want, surely. Um, I know. Yeah. I know. It's, it's really, it's insane. I, 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 I like, I've got an understanding of my addiction, like uh, around what triggers me and, um my own battles but i'll never fully understand addiction as a whole i i just i i won't it's it's insanity at its finest you know um and he went off to treatment and i was with jack and i mean steve's done what 16 17 rehabs so this is a guy that has really struggled really really had his battles um and in 2020 so what so there was an incident where um so i felt i always wanted to so steve was he was physically present like physically he is a far better parent than i am and emotionally i would say that i'm uh better than steve or it's something I, you know, do better than, you know, him. Um, so physically, he was always really good. He was really good at playing with the kids and getting down on their level. And um, whereas I always felt, feel still to this day, like overstimulated. Um, but he's really good at, you know, really good at that stuff. And I always want, I, you know, I spoke about the fear of, you know, Steve dying from addiction and giving him his dream and, and I, I think with Steve, when Steve relapsed, I, I didn't want Jack to be an only child. Um, so when he came out of the, his detox in 2000 and what, how old's Indy? 2018. Um, I, you know, wanted to have another child so that Jack wasn't left on his own um, and they could support each other. So I fell pregnant with India um and that kind of added to the mix i guess (laughs) two kids um and i was working throughout my um pregnancy with um jack but and i was a nanny um and the family didn't want me to go back because their children had grown up and they'd kind of got rid of the stair gates and um you know didn't want to recruit they got out of that (laughs) like the, the you know the children had grown up so 
um i was uh well, i was on maternity leave and fell pregnant with india and after i had in or when i was pregnant with india i thought i do not want to be a mum that doesn't do anything i think it's really important i want my children to see that you have to work for nice things in life you have to work for what you want you know if you want nice holidays or just any holiday you know if you want nice things you want to be able to treat yourself it's important that you work and that though that those ethics came from my father you know um and just general family like my family i've come from they apart from my mum you know like cousins and you go to work right you go to work to earn your living from where I'm from and I Steve always said to me he was like you're always supporting others you should become a therapist um and I thought about it but I thought I'm not really I think I'd struggle with the education side and um I and I kind of looked around and I thought, you know, what's going on here? So I was really fortunate enough to have um, my parents. They were able to put me into residential treatment. Um, but coming into the rooms and, and meeting, you know, a whole new range of walks, people from walks of life that couldn't afford treatment, I thought, this is, this is not fair. You know, why is it that people who can afford it can get the help and people that can't just get writ off by society? Um, and I spoke earlier about the dry house and the bridge to normal living. And in Oxford, there there's no dry houses. Um, there's one, but you have to have a local connection. It's a six bed or seven bed. Um, so you have to be from Oxford and you have to have come out of treatment to go there. Um, and I thought, why not? Like, OK, so what am I going to do? I've got two children. I've got a baby on the way. Um, what am I going to do? where I can manage like the kids if I find an office job I've got to find suitable hours it's going to be really difficult um what can I do where I'm my own boss um and I kind of looked around and I thought well there's no dry houses in Oxford and what I'm seeing is people are being separated from their families so they're going off to treatment and they can't move back to Oxford because it's too high risk they don't want to go home um they don't want to go home to you know where they are in oxford because it's too high risk um and i you know for me i think addiction is a family illness i think everybody gets impacted and i think it's really sad that loved ones you know the addict has the physical problem goes off to treatment and gets help and the family members left like you know um, with no support no treatment the addict can go and get treatment but the family members just sat at home with all this trauma <laughs> like um and I thought you know I want to bring families back together it's really important to bring families back together um and I also wanted to stop the cycle of people in prison who are just recommitting crimes because there's not enough support um so I thought okay let's let's find a charity let's uh found find um let's make up a charity like why don't I open up a dry house um and I spoke to my I went to my brother I went to my dad and um my dad was all about kind of you know where are you going to get the money from it's better to go private why would you do a charity and and I said to him because if it becomes about the money 
the mission isn't going to work. Um, it's not about that for me. It's about helping other people. Um, and I think that was true. Hey, yeah, giving back, but also that was driven from my own personal experiences. Um, you know, giving back is really important as well, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so that's what I did. I founded a charity and it was uh, registered, I think, the day before my daughter was born in 2019. Um, and in October 2019, I opened up the first house. Um, and what I wanted for ADAPT was I wanted unique supported housing. So in most dry houses, they get one house group a week. Um, now that's terrifying because for people because you go into treatment, there's a lot of structure um, and you're in a bubble. You're kind of in a lovely house wherever you are. Um, no responsibility. You just have to turn up to groups, you turn up for mealtimes. Um, so I wanted something different. I wanted to introduce, you know, more support, medium to high level of support. Um, and... I opened up the first house. I used to take my baby with me, so I would do house groups. At this point, I was still with Steve as well, um, who's using was under control. Um, he wasn't using class A's, um, so he would help out. Um, and I used to take Indy with me. And I remember the one of the trustees, he passed away in June, but he said to me, <clears throat> he said, get the second one. <clears throat> so the first one filled quite quickly that you don't have to have a local connection. Um, and he said, get the second one. I was like, really? Like, I'm doing this all on my own, you know? Managing five clients with a baby was enough for me. Um, so I then opened up the second one, which we opened in January 2020. I did a sleep out. So I found the, how I raised money was um, I sent a letter to all my family, friends, and cousins, and godparents, and said, this is, this is what I want to do. This, here's the vision. This is my mission. Um, this is what I need to raise to open the first house and I raised it um, and then for the second one I did a sleep out a uh, 48 hour sleep out on the streets and raised 11,000 pounds and that enabled me to open up the well second done. house um, and then when I the Christmas before I opened the second house I met someone who works in a residential treatment center and he said I'm really interested in in what you do I'd really like to come and see what you do because I was talking about the mission the vision and saying I really want to introduce counseling um, and I had no experience. And, and he said, oh, I'm really keen to come and have a look. And I said, well, I can't afford to take anyone on at the moment, but I would really appreciate your support. Um, and in the May, June 2020 time, I was able to take someone on. So I took him on, basically headhunted him. <laughs> and he left his, his job and um, came and introduced the group therapy that he did in residential treatment. Now there it was costing clients four or five grand a week. Um, and here it's completely free. So he introduced, I took on the office in June, 2020. And then we started running groups from here and it's now become the hub for our clients. Um, and we do group therapy workshops, mini groups. It's totally free of charge. Um, it is male only at the moment. Um, and it's, I mean, it's just taken off. So we've now got 10 properties. Um, there's a team of five um, that I manage. <laughs> um, 
and we've got three primary Why did you laugh at that? I have a question there. Why do you laugh at that? Is it because you never thought you'd be in that position? I laughed because it's a hell of a lot to take on. It's like the, yeah. the like exhausting. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But also I do, I do. I'm not very good at patting myself on the back, but there's mo moments that I've had. So we were on Sky News a few months yeah. ago. And when Sky were here, I was crying. And I it's those moments where I'm like, this is like, it's just, a, it's a lot to take in, I think. Just I never thought how how big it would get. I mean, in, in so we're coming up to the fourth birthday. We've had over 600 referrals. Wow. Um, we've now got 40 beds. Um, so we also provide move-ons. So when clients come to us, um, they do six months treatment. They, they've got a choice if they want to extend or not. Um, but we try not to get them to extend too long. Otherwise, they been, can become institutionalized. Um, mm -hmm. but they have one-to-one -one counseling. We do offer acupuncture, yoga, mindfulness, boxercise, um, group th therapy, workshops, mini groups. So their structure is four hours a day. Um, mm -hmm. And they come here, they go upstairs um and we've got move on accommodation so once they've completed the program they graduate we put on a graduation for them they get a certificate which to some Amazing. people might seem like nothing but actually i think as addicts we we feel we don't we're, we're good at not completing things you know um so i think it's really important to acknowledge that their success of completing treatment and six months is a long time as well yeah absolutely um, mm -hmm. and then they move into one of our move on accommodations um so we've got a couple of flats two bed flats we've got three beds four beds um houses so yeah i mean it's a, it's i i didn't think that it would ever come to this really. i didn't know what the i just kind of i didn't have a so the business plan was on here mm -hmm. <laughs> I had like this is what I want to do I'm just going to wing it you know I have no experience of setting up a business or not, nothing like that at all but I thought if I can go from my own experience then hopefully it become it can become something and for me it was like as long as it helps one person and you know this place is I've seen people see their children I've had one client who's been on probation from the age of 18 to the age of 40 He's no longer on probation. He didn't see his kids for seven years. He's now seeing his kids every other weekend. Like, just stories like that, you know. I like, love hearing like, things like that, yeah. It's really beautiful, isn't it? But going back to 2020, so <clears throat> I left Steve in 2020, um, and he went to treatment, moved in, moved in with a friend, relapsed, and I went off uh, to a boot camp and whilst I was at boot camp Steve had relapsed hard and he was looking after the children um and social services rung me because school got wind of it and the school rung social services and social said to me if you don't come home uh we're taking we're, we'll be picking up your children from school um <laughs> um well, so phone calls you can get that is it Oh, God, it was awful. And it was all the way in Norwich as well. So uh, that wasn't a, a, a nice call. Um, um, just, we just got people commenting saying it yeah. sounds like you're doing an amazing job. What a brilliant service. All those no, sorts of things. Yeah. Um, 
so he, I I left him, basically, you know, um, and I left him because I had had enough. Um, I think creating a kind of abstinence-based community helped me as well. Um, and I thought, you know, like, I really want this man to get clean. And me, whatever I've done in the past has not worked. So something's got to change. Um, and I thought just try, like, consequences are what stop people. Um, the loss of me wasn't enough. Um, I've said very recently we nearly lost Steve. Um, he was very close to getting a serious uh, blood infection. Um, you know, and we were at the hospital and he... But that uh, more recently, I've learned to really detach from Steve's addiction. I've had to for my own kind of well-being. Um, and it's mm -hmm. been really, really, really tough, you know, seeing someone you care about so much. Steve and I are really close. We're very, very close friends. Um, but just seeing someone like that, I just couldn't watch him anymore. I just couldn't, couldn't do it. And when he... Um, went off to treatment he went off to I mean he's been to so many I've lost count but he went to treatment in 2020 and um or 2020 21 what year are we in 23 so 2021 he went to treatment and I COVID well, during COVID I found COVID because COVID hit in the March of 2020 um and I really struggled with meetings um, with Zoom meetings, I just wasn't connecting. I felt really, I think we all did, right? Felt really disconnected. Um, yeah. And I was really overworked. So I was working like all hours, um, struggling with being a parent, just felt really overwhelmed, became really resentful, um, wasn't able to, usually I'm quite good at communicating. Um, but I just I became completely shut down and at my eight years I remember going to a meeting I got my key ring and and I said like I I was really honest and I said I'm really struggling and if I don't do something quickly I'm going to use um, and very quickly I did um, I relapsed and I relapsed into um, I started taking Valium um, and then I started using cocaine um, and you hear often that the drugs stop working. Um, and I ended up down the road of smoking crack and heroin. Um, and like, that's just bonkers. For someone that's life had been destroyed by those drugs through a loved one's addiction, it was, you know, um, just madness, really. Um, and Steve was in treatment at the time. And when I relapsed, and I remember the shame of the relapse was awful it was so awful like working in in a recovery community whilst using so like juggling two children a recut like a job mm -hmm. um talking to clients about how great recovery is whilst trying to maintain my own addiction was really tough and I got honest about it quite quickly with my colleagues and stepped away from the charity and was working from home and went to a meeting and owned it but from that meeting, I couldn't stop using, and that continued for quite a long time. Um, and because I'd owned it once, and because I was so fearful of the consequences, if it was to come out that I was using, 
um, I was lying. You know, I was I was a complete wreck turning up to work. I was very anxious. Um, I think people knew what was going on but didn't want to confront it through their fear. You know, imagine because you're like, the boss. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's I haven't approached the kind of impacts of. I know that my relapse has had a huge impact on um, my colleagues, especially one of them, the kind of main okay. guy that runs the program, but it's a bit too much for me to kind of approach at the moment. Mm. Um, I still feel shame and it's healthy shame. It's important for me to stay connected to that and remember it, but just to go near it is a bit too much to bear at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. And Steve came out of treatment I was using he thought that I was clean. He relapsed. He then relapsed, and it came out that you know, I was, you know, I told him, and we we, we used together. Um, I crashed my car. Oh. I was having to ring him for help with the children. Um, I overdosed in the bath. My more much left. My kids were in the bath. I overdosed when they were in the bath. Um, but Steve was there. No, Steve wasn't there. A friend came round. Like he came round to see me, and I wasn't compass mentors. Wow. Um, and a, a friend had come. That it was quickly getting out of control. Very quickly getting out of control, and friends tried to approach me, and I was lying. You know, I'm fine. I'm fine. I was so afraid of the consequences. I really didn't want to lose what I built up. Um, mm -hmm. And a friend approached me and said, look, we, we know there's a lot of people talk in the rooms. There's a lot you hear a lot. And I guess it's like circle of friends. You hear a lot about other people. And I'm a face mm -hmm. in Oxford. So pe pe some people were concerned. Some people were just gossiping. Um, mm -hmm. But a friend of mine who was really concerned came to me and said, look, I'm really worried. I'm really, really, really worried about you. Um and he thanked God for that man because he he said, listen, you need to go and sort it out. You know, like the kids, they're, they're only getting like 10% of you. They need you. They really, really need you, Eddie. Um, okay. You will lose everything. He said, like, you can nip it in the bud now, get some help. And, and thank God for my parents because I, you know, reached out to them um, and went off to treatment last year. Um and the last year has been, you know, uh, challenging, but I just, I like, if there's anyone struggling, please reach out. Like the, 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 you know, the shame is, you know, in not coming back, like come back, you know, like if anyone's struggling, like you, I, I, I felt so lonely. And I think the worst thing for me was, I'd done a lot of work on myself in the eight years that I had. And so I was so aware of my process. I was so aware of what was going on for me and my resentment, but I couldn't get out. The resentment was towards myself, but I just couldn't step out of it. Um, and I, thank God, came back. Um, and social consequence was that social services got involved um 
which to be honest was a bit of a blessing because when I came out of treatment I needed the support I wanted the support and I had nothing to hide um, mm -hmm. my family were incredible really supportive understanding of you know the workload that I had um, and I guess I've, I've learned a lot you know from that relapse um, mm -hmm. you know so what triggers me um, what I need to do differently um, I never thought that I there were times in my eight years that I believed I'd never truly use again I really mm -hmm. believed that before I relapsed that that lifted um, they do say that um, a relapse happens weeks before it happens in your head doesn't it doesn't it process yeah 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 so when people say like oh I lapsed it's like but that would mean it was about the drugs when actually it's a behavioral for me it was yeah. about the behaviors um mm -hmm. so yeah it's um and and the other thing that adapt now offers is we've got a family program which we've been running for a year so we support family members so referrals come through from a family member and we get them support as well and we've got lots of exciting things for uh, the family program mm -hmm. um, I guess that the, there's low there's a huge vision for the charity I, I think the main struggle at the moment is uh is money so we're, we're a charity so we're free for our clients it's free um mm -hmm. but the, the if we could you know i'm hoping one day that a billionaire is going to come and go hey here's buy some houses because the vision is to be all over the country um yeah. have a female unit as well a detox unit um and get around because it's it's cheaper for the government to fund somewhere like us than it is a, a residential place or send people off to treatment is there nothing you can do around because i know lots of local authorities do things for like homeless people and young um young people who maybe have been made homeless or uh it's almost like the naughty home right where yeah. they help house children is there is there nothing even like government funded grant funded even lottery funded that you can do? yeah we have had some money off the lottery, but it's putting in the, you know, you have to have a certain amount of accounts. And I've got a fundraiser, but she's been off recently because she's, you know, on extended leave. But um, yeah. I'd love to get into Parliament. I think what a lot of people don't realise that how unique ADAPT is and how special we are um, until they come here and think, wow, there's just a lot on offer, you know. Um, yeah, and it seems very comprehensive. Yeah, yeah, we're a you know a community. We're like family here, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And I've seen amazing things happen here, and it's just like I think, like all of us, it's like money can stop us from doing achieving our goals. Yeah, yeah, it will come. I know it will come. Um, but there's just de people are desperate. People aren't getting funding anymore. You know, the government have made huge cuts to services. Mm -hmm. Quite lucky it's only lost 10 percent of their funding but um places you know like kent they've just lost over seven hundred and fifty thousand pounds they've got eight beds eight residential spaces for clients until april mm -hmm. it's like that's why we're it's like, there's such a huge problem you know on the streets and it's just really care the, the, the horrendous yeah, yeah like yeah, I think what, what I've taken from here is that there's almost... So 
I have a, a level of understanding um, with addiction and uh, from personal experience and, and seeing people that I really care about as well. And I don't think people really understand not just the impact it has on the person, but it's the people around them, the environment around them. And the fact that you're actually looking to address that more than just the individual, you're doing the family support, you're doing the work to not just help get some help someone get clean, but actually help someone understand why being clean and how they can build routines and coping strategies or protection, future protection strategies in their life. That is so needed. Again, recent i know we've discussed previously around like counseling and stuff the waiting list a year two years on for certain things um yeah. and th that isn't right it there, there's an epidemic currently of people struggling with addiction in all various forms and whilst and what always happens in any sort of cost of living crisis people can't afford to do the social things that they would usually do so then look for the other quick highs or endorphin generating things to give them that element of purpose and fulfillment in their life and that there needs to be so much more done so i think parliament's definitely something that i've taken from this that it needs to go to government level but if, equally within like the education system yeah. us all going through school we're all other than james me you and risa around a similar sort of age early 30s um there was nothing discussed in school nothing. when we were in school about addiction and the fear of it and and how to understand mental health and all these wider topics there's so much more that um that that should and can be done they, even like the they, they, i know there's like mentions of drugs and alcohol and stuff but there's there's not enough like alcohol yeah it can be great and it was great for me at the start but there's no one of how bad it can actually be it's not treated the same as the other drugs mm. and, um, no, it's they'd not. be really bad for you and my experiences is it's just as bad as them. Well, it's worse for me because that was my biggest yeah. like, issue. And talking on, yeah, I didn't get any help at the time because I kept getting told nine months, a year, even longer. So I gave up on asking because I, it was making us worse. I kept asking for help. I couldn't get any help. So then I ended up, I was just getting worse and worse. And this is after a suicide attempt. So and then I know where you were talking about it last week and, and kind of touching on your um, point earlier, um, Eddie, about like generational trauma and stuff. And like my kids, they, the, although I'm a lot better than the person that I was, I still have temper. I still get, I still snap. And, and that's because I haven't actually sorted out the, the issues that were causing me to drink. I've, I've got myself sober. I feel a hundred million times. It's the why, mate. Kid. Yeah, yeah, it's the why I haven't, I haven't, I haven't got, I haven't got around that. And although I've done, I've been able to delve into that myself and start looking at why I, I drank and why I struggled with confidence, those sort of things, because that's what the alcohol was. It was a confidence booster. But mm -hmm. I'm, I haven't dug deep enough yet, and that's I've, I've started reaching out to see if I if, if I can get some sort of help, even if I am waiting a year. I don't feel like that would be an issue now. I can, I can wait that long. Yeah, but also you're doing this, mate, which, and these sorts of things, and you, yeah. you're growing your network, and you do, like, we ch chat a lot. I know you speak to lots of other people. So, like, take confidence from that, because I do think you are doing a lot as well. Um, Eddie, we do have a question here. Is there a service that you offer to support children of parents with addiction? 
Uh, it depends how old the children are. So young adolescents, not at the moment, no. But we do have 18, 19-year-olds, adults. Um, yeah. But not at the moment. But I've just employed, so I've been managing the family program. Um, and it's just become too much for me. Like I know when I need to turn off. Um, so we've just taken someone on who's going to run the family program. We've got loads of amazing ideas for that in terms of, so the family program is nationwide because it's all remote, but I'd like to set up a chat room. <clears throat> I'd like to have uh, groups for children and I'd like to have groups here as well for, for adults and families and, and what's beautiful as well is we've had family members contact us about their son's addiction. Um, and then when their son's ready, they, he's come, they've come through ADAPT. So it's oh, like amazing. that, the program and power. And then when they do the graduation, the family members come and their son's there. Like it's really, really moving, like really powerful. And we get a lot of referrals from family members, and if you don't, if I don't get back to them immediately, they're gone. And it's because they, they I know that they contact us in that des like feeling desperate, and then they feel shame. And it's like, the, please, like I, I've been there. I understand, and I'm here to help. Like my team are here to help you. Like I can't. It's I know how lonely and how isolating it is. Not only your addiction your own addiction mm. but a loved one's addiction and you know like people who don't understand uh, just leave him or just leave her and it's like it's not that simple it's not it's not that simple it's like until like what I've learned is never judge I cannot judge you know but I've judged so many people along the way for whatever whatever they've done and when I've ended up doing what I judge them for it's like I've learned you you can't judge people you can't you never know what life is going to bring you know um mm -hmm. and yeah. it's just like you got to I don't know it's just I know how difficult it is you know and I think it's um it's really important that everyone seeks help together and if, if mm -hmm. your loved one isn't ready like get support for yourself you don't mm -hmm. suffer in silence. Yeah. I'm just conscious of, of time here slightly because I'm conscious that you're in the office as well. So that, that's also a thing and it's 10 past 10. So um, I suppose the, the last sort of bits as, as we, we get there is what do you want your future to be? It, it's been honestly so inspirational in so many ways and humbling and emotional hearing what you've been through. But what, what do you want your future to be? And, and how do you plan for that when you've had a, a relapse potentially only like mm -hmm. a year and a bit ago or whatever? Like, how are you making sure that your future is everything that you obviously want it to be? I think I it's really important for me to stay in the day. Um, so I do have a vision for the charity um, and I believe that will come true. But for now, it's if I project too much into the future, I, I, I'm not present. And it's really, at the moment, I'm really trying to focus on my children getting some help. Steve's back in treatment, um, which is really good. Um, but my children are desperately missing their father. Um, and for, for me, it's about, you know, I'm very good at putting everybody else first. And I think this past year has been about, really looking after me and knowing what I'm what I can what I can take on and 
what I can't, you know, and I guess that my future is all I ever want is for my children to be happy, for my children to have their father back in their lives um, and for ADAPT to continue helping people save their life and bringing families back together. Mm -hmm. God, if that isn't something Very that well. makes you motivated, yeah. Wow. Yeah, unbelievable. Is there, just before we wrap up, is there anything else that we've missed that you wanted to cover, Eddie? I know, I know we discussed the fact you've been on a recent podcast and you maybe wanted to cover something else, but have we covered everything? Yeah, I think I've spoken a yeah. lot more adapt um, and parenting. Um, if anyone watching this wants to donate, please donate. <laughs> Yeah. Um, How can they donate? Where where do they go? What do they do? So go onto our website, which is adaptoxford.org.uk. Um, and it will have all the information there. If you want to make a referral, put in a referral. Um, if you're unsure, if you can't, there is the donations page with all the information. But if you want to speak yeah. to me, email me. You can find me on Instagram. Um, yeah. Just spread What's the, the Instagram message? handle uh what is it reese i think it's i'm getting it up now there's two so i think the the there's adapt underscore oxford and then my personal one is eddie cobb 21 21 what would do to be 21 again eh yeah actually no no okay well no, you, you probably wouldn't, but I, I tell you what, I would love to be anyway. <laughs> um, but no, honestly, Eddie, your your story has been you're probably the first well, no, you are the first guest that I had to hold back tears. So um you didn't quite crack me, but nearly. Um your, your story you is, me. Yeah, your, your story is honestly so inspirational. I cried that I cried the first time I listened to the, the podcast um at that point. Mm -hmm. I didn't today, and I thought, all right, I'm going to be fine. And then it just, it completely, I, I don't know, it was something completely different to the first time I got this. And that, that, that's the beauty of your story, really. It's like you get so many different emotions through it. The hope that comes out at the end and the positivity, yeah. the inspiration, it's, it's genuinely amazing, your story. And I know, obviously, it would have been extremely hard to live through um at yeah. times but where you are now and I'm, i've never said it, but congratulations on one year as well um yeah huge congratulations. it is inspirational thank you so massive massive congrats for where you are now christ it's got us again yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh bless him man worry say um but yeah, thank you, Eddie. Thank you, James. Thank you, Reese, And thank you to all of our listeners who've joined us throughout uh, this evening. Um, if you're catching this on Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Acast, uh, when it goes out next week, because you wouldn't have caught, caught the live version, um, please go and follow, um, adapt, go and reach out to Eddie and the team. And yeah, we are, we are so grateful for all of our listeners and we will catch you on the next one. Thank you and good night. See ya. Let's go. Time to grind. Get inside your mind. Yeah, we working overtime. That's the only way to climb. We gonna make it in our prime. Signing on the dotted line. Cashing checks left and right. That's the way I'm living life.